0: Camilla and you're listening to The Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories, and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So let's roll! Welcome back to Cat's Whisker. Today, we're going to talk about two very special people. Without them, we couldn't have rock and roll, probably. Or recording, in general. And this actually is the first of a series that you will see in the future as well, where I talk about people... And lives and the stories of these people that made rock and roll or were there to make it happen. Their contribution might be huge, tiny, well-known or overshadowed. It doesn't matter. In no particular order we will discover their lives and their music. And if you like engineering and nearly forgotten artists, well, you're in for a treat today. In today's episode, I'll dive in the life of a talented couple that for so many is not that famous. Les Paul and Mary Ford. Well, okay, I know you know who Les Paul is, okay? Everybody does, even the folks that think it's just a guitar model. I've mentioned him in the episode about the history of electric guitar, by the way, check that out. But not many know that he's also been a music star in the 50s alongside his talented wife, the singer and guitarist Mary Ford. The couple had radio and TV shows, tons of top 10 hits and have definitely been pioneers in music recording. Mary Ford, whose actual name was Iris Colleen Summers, was born in 1924 and came from a family that always encouraged her love for music. Pretty early on in her life, she becomes a professional country western singer and she tours and takes part to radio programs with her trio, The Sunshine Girls, back in Jimmy Wakely. And it's in this environment that she meets Les Paul in 1945. But let's rewind a little. Les Paul. How can I describe him? Basically, he's the kind of person that when you read all the things he has managed to accomplish during his life, you kind of hate him. And then you hate your own life naturally. Like, if I was him, I would be annoyed at myself sometimes. Like, imagine being him, sitting on the couch, just drinking a cup of tea and never realizing you can change music industry forever. That kind of shit never happens to me, but at least I can have as many cups of tea in peace as I want, alongside my empty mind. Lester William Porfus was born in 1915, and ever since he was a little kid, his favourite thing was taking things apart. For the joy of his own family, I bet! His first experiments were conducted on a player piano. You know, those pianos that play the keys mechanically and that will always tempt each and every one of us to sit down and pretend we are Beethoven. Now, I think everybody knows what I'm talking about, but do you know how they work? Because I had absolutely no idea. They were first produced at the end of the 19th century and became a big hit in the 20s right before the phonograph became the main way to listen to music. The first player piano was powered by vacuum suction and a pneumatic mechanism. It played thanks to a music roll, which was a perforated roll of paper where every single hole corresponded to a note. The way these music rolls were produced is extremely interesting and might be one of the first attempts to audio recording. To punch the right holes and record the correct sound, respecting the pauses, style and speed of the piece, the roll was created by recording, quotation mark, in real time, an actual hand play performance of a pianist. When the roll was punched, it was ready to be mass produced and sold to be played in a player piano. And how did that work? When the music roll turns inside the piano, the air passes through the holes of the tracker bar and the performance is played back thanks to the pedals that, when pressed, generate vacuum that spreads air through an air motor and tubes linked to valves that press the right key in the piano. Thanks to player pianos and the possibility to play back the exact performance as it was recorded by the pianist, we can now listen to how Debussy, Scott Joplin, Rachmaninoff Gershwin had played their own compositions. It's absolutely mind blowing, right? But back to Lespo. He was a curious child, and he sees that when he covers some of the holes, or he punches new ones in the music roll, he can modify songs. He taught himself how to play a banjo guitar and harmonica and invented the flippable harmonica holder to wear around the neck to play the harmonica on both sides while playing the guitar. Basically, Les Paul invented Bob Dylan. There you go. I've already talked in the other episode about how important Les Paul has been in the development of solid body guitars. I mean, the fact that there's people that know the guitar and not the person pretty much sums it up. During these first years of his life, he will be a prolific inventor. The ideas, again, came from necessity. He starts performing semi-professionally at the age of 13. After being on the field for some years, he will realize that to get the tips from whomever was sitting at the back of the venue, he had to make sure they could actually hear him. That's when he amplifies and electrifies his guitar by wiring a phonograph needle to it and connecting it to a radio speaker and to avoid feedback, he stacked a cluster of pairs in it. While figuring out how to make the first solid body guitar, he literally stole a section of a train rail and stretched the guitar string over it, setting a phone microphone as a pickup and amplified it with the radio. That worked! no feedback, sustain was guaranteed, and it was so sturdy that it didn't vibrate. Not ideal playing a railroad track, though. And as you already know from the other episode, that's when he starts to develop the idea for the log. The other amazing and cutting-edge, quite literally, idea in Les Paul's life is basically what allows me to do what I'm doing right now. I know some of you probably wish I wasn't doing it, but anyway... It's during these early years, especially the ones with Mary Ford that Les Paul develops the sound-on-sound recording technique and then the multi-track recorder. And that's in fact the second biggest engineering outcome connected to his professional career as a musician, besides the solid body guitar. He asked himself, if I can't hear myself when I play, how do I know what the audience is going to listen to? How am I going to progress if I can't hear myself from the outside? The only way to self-record back then was cutting a groove into a physical disc made of a material like wax or aluminium and to do that he needed a disc cutting lathe. So when he was a teenager, he built himself one. With a catalogue flywheel, dental belt and a knife from his mum's kitchen. It was during the mid-30s when Les Paul decided to start experimenting. He wanted to record a song. Nobody else could play with him that night, so instead of opening a bottle of wine and complaining about how bored he was, like I would do, obviously, he thought, if one cut on the disc works, why wouldn't two work? How did this work in the beginning? Well... As he defined it, it was quite barbaric. Here's what he said about it as reported on his official website.
1: So I thought about it and I dug out another playback arm and added it because I've got to cut the record twice on the outside groove to get the rhythm track. So on the first pass, I recorded the rhythm guitar... And then, on the next set of cruise, I lay down the bass line using the low strings on my rhythm guitar. To do this, I had to have two pickups to play these things back on, and be able to start them at the same time. And of course, that was the toughest thing in the world to do, to take two pickup arms and put them down at the same time, and start them off together. But I kept at it. And in a few days, I had this thing, so I could play back a rhythm section in sync and play my part over it.
0: He keeps experimenting with sound, and it takes a while before he feels completely satisfied with his recordings. During the 30s, his work as a musician continues with performances of the Les Paul Trio, records and even radio appearances, where he becomes the first person to ever play electric guitar on radio. In the early 40s then, a very important friendship and creative collaboration starts when he teams up with Bing Crosby. One of their most successful songs was released at the end of World War II. And it's called It's Been a Long Time. It was 1945 and many things start to shape up. Bing Crosby, seeing Paul's talent and the frustration for the perfect sound he was trying to achieve, encourages him to create his own recording studio. And that's what he does. His music at this point, at least the one that he wanted to produce himself in his studio garage, was mainly instrumental. Yes, he was a genius and talented guitarist, but unfortunately, not a very good singer. Hey, you can't have them all, less. When talking to musician and actor Gene Autry, Paul mentioned that instrumental compositions were draining him, in a way, and that he really needed a good singer. That's how... In the same 1945, he was introduced to Colleen Summers, mostly known as Mary Ford. Now, oftentimes when reading about the duo or the couple itself, I have the feeling that many people kind of underestimate the great musician Mary Ford was and how important her musical and technical collaboration with Les Paul was. Not only she performed with him, both singing and playing electric guitar, but was involved in many of his experiments with sound engineering. All these great recording and mixing techniques counted both of them in the process. Obviously, it all happened gradually. In 1946, Les Paul was on tour with the Andrews sisters, and his mother tells him, Les, I've heard you the other night on the radio. You played really well. And Paul says... It couldn't have been me. I'm playing seven shows a day with the Andrews sisters. So that's when his mom says, Well, there's loads of people out there copying you. That guy on the radio sounded just like you, Lester. You should do something about it. Now you see, I'm Italian, so I know exactly how Les Paul felt. Come on, you never want to disappoint your own mother. And that's why he quits his store with the Andrews sisters and runs back home to his garage to work on what he then called his new sound. So the idea was basically doing something completely different and potentially impossible to copy. And to do that, he had to implement his recording techniques. So that's what he did. Well, first of all, he got himself an awful lot of acetate discs. Why? Because when overdubbing on discs, you basically pay for every single mistake you make. Allow me to explain. First thing to do is recording yourself with the disc cutting lathe. After that, to record a second layer, you'll need a second disc ready to be recorded on the disc cutting lathe, while the first part is playing on a second record player. So you literally play on top of it, while the recording will record both the first and the second layer. If you're not satisfied with your first obit dubbing, because why would you be? You can throw the second disc away and do it again, constantly adding layers. The only problem was that constantly adding layers meant that the more you add, the worse the first ones are going to sound. Les Paul tried to solve this deterioration problem, figuring out an unusual but effective order in the recording linked to the importance of the different parts. So let's say we're having a drum-like part with a rhythm created with his hands on the guitar. That part was recorded first, because it wasn't that important. The voice, the guitar solo, all those sections that had to be clean and clear, had to be the last. Being able to record with two disc recorders allowed him to experiment a lot. So much so that he's able, in 1948, to release for Capitol Records three singles with overdubbed guitars. Now, we're in 1948. That is the year that changes everything. I know I've said that many times, but you're about to hear something that changed Les Paul's life forever. In January, Paul and Mary Ford drove to Wisconsin to spend some time with Paul's family. On the way back to Los Angeles, Mary was driving the Buick. But while they were on Route 66, near Davenport, Oklahoma, they've been surprised by a winter storm. Mary lost control of the vehicle on the icy road and the car dropped 20 feet into a ravine. Luckily the car while going off road hit some telephone and telegraph lines and this was actually crucial because when the phone company sent their staff to fix the problem eight hours later, Mary and Les got rescued. Needless to say, the two, after a car accident and a very long wait in the snow, weren't in the best of conditions. Well, actually Mary was. While the car was falling into the void, Les literally protected her face, throwing his arm around her. But that also meant bad news for him. He, in fact, amongst other things, had completely shattered his elbow. The doctors weren't very positive and told Les they needed to amputate. He basically says, No fucking way. I have to be able to play guitar. I mean, I'm not sure these were the exact words, but probably something that sounded like this. Because what he does next is probably one of the biggest acts of devotion in guitar history. He finds a doctor that is positive, at least as much as he is, about saving his arm. To do so, the elbow was replaced with a piece of his leg and since there was no elbow joint, the arm had to be locked in one place for the rest of his life. And what better position than the one he held his guitar in? So he says to the doctor, when you are executing the surgery, put my index finger in my belly button, set it like that and I'll be able to play guitar again. And it worked! It took him a year to fully recover, but Mary stayed by his side and all the time they had to spend at home in order to recover from the accident solidified their creative collaboration, making many experiments possible, especially since Les had a brand new machine to play with. Now, remember that I mentioned about Les Paul's friendship with Bing Crosby? Okay, so let me just say this, find yourself a friend that believes in you like Crosby believed in Les Paul. In 1949, in fact, knowing about Les Paul's obsession for a better recording device, Crosby presents him with probably one of the first tape machines in the United States. It was an Ampex Model 300 and, as you can probably imagine, Paul decided to work on it straight away. Although this machine was very advanced, there was a problem. Being a monophonic recorder, after recording one track, if you wanted to record another one the original recording was constantly replaced with the new mixed recording if you wanted to add layers you were constantly burning bridges behind you then an idea struck him adding a fourth playback head at the beginning of the signal chain of the tape machine and connecting it to the record head would allow them to record different layers on the same tape this made him realize pretty soon that He could do with this machine the exact same things he could do with a disc cutting lathe. He recounts that the exact moment he thought of that he just grabbed a piece of paper and drew out his idea. He then ran to his wife Mary and said, forget hanging up the laundry, forget the whole thing, lock the place up, we are leaving. I've just found a way to record without needing the garage or a recording studio. I can do the whole thing anywhere that we wish to record. He called Ampix and told them he needed an additional head. Then they jumped in the car and drove something like 30 hours to get to Chicago. They had no prototype to present, no test, nothing, but they knew it would work. When they arrived to the New Lawrence Hotel in Chicago, the head he requested was there. Paul then asked a guy there to drill a hole in the machine for him and he and Mary then mounted a new part. And after recording, this is what they heard. Hello.
1: Hi, hello there. Hello, Hello folks. Hi, hello there.
0: Hello, folks. It was working. The sound was coming back. This way, the original track was always preserved and they could record multiple tracks on top of each other. Also, they could record essentially anywhere. Little did they know back then that they were going to become superstars. But this is a story for another time. If you want to hear what happens next, tune in next week. I hope you really liked this episode and remember to follow me on Instagram at the Cats Whisker Podcast and on TikTok at the Cats Whisker. I know it's not very retro of me, but I add a lot of vintage content there, so check it out. And until then, I'll see you next week. Ciao!